1: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Harriet Agnew, our City correspondent, Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, and Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and also from New York, Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor. We're also joined by our guest this week, Tim Bush of investor advisory group Perk. And we have a recording from a weekend panel session that we did involving Philip Hildebrand, who is currently vice chairman of asset manager BlackRock. We'll be looking today at a trio of stories. First, the latest thinking about Brexit and the Swiss Plus model. Also, a look at RBS and what it does with its deposits. And finally, reflecting on investment banks and the latest downturn in their results. First, though, to that story of what a Brexit deal might look like with the EU, at least as it relates to the City of London... Harriet, we were involved in an interesting debate at the FT Weekend Festival, which was held this past Saturday at Kenwood House in London. And we had a very interesting panel there, including Philip Hildebrand, who used to be the head of the Swiss Central Bank. And we talked to him in some detail about this idea that what the city and the UK might be able to negotiate with the EU was a kind of Swiss plus model. He didn't think much of that idea.
2: As you know, Switzerland, for very similar reasons, by the way, although we're not an island, we don't want to be part of the European Union. At the same time, we have the world's premier wealth management financial center, so we desperately need access. And unlike the UK, we have a very vibrant physical trading system. We have a big manufacturing system that's still doing very well. So what we needed is access to the European market. So what have we done? Ten years of, I think, very skillful negotiations, We've managed to have pretty much free access on physical goods. We have not been able to, in any way, regain any sovereignty on immigration. This is very, very important. Don't think Switzerland has any control over immigration. We now have a big problem because the people want that. There's been a vote, we can't implement it. And, and this is crucial, we have no financial services agreement. Despite the fact that we've negotiated for 10 years and
3: 160 so Hildebrand doesn't think that a Swiss-style deal that the UK would be able to negotiate is either feasible or desirable. Now, this is likely to dismay finances across the city because while they've given up hope of universal access to the single market through a process known as passporting, they were hoping for some sort of bespoke deal akin to Switzerland. But anyway, Hildebrand has pointed out that It took Switzerland 10 years of negotiating and they had to negotiate close to 160 specific trade deals, but none of them actually related to finance. And one of the most important factors here relates to immigration, which was at the heart of the campaign for Brexit. And Theresa May has pledged to curb immigration. But Switzerland has accepted the free movement of EU citizens across its borders and belongs to the Schengen zone. So therefore, for the UK to have something akin to a Swiss model which allows free movement of people is very unlikely to wash with the electorate and with Theresa May.
1: And of course, as Philip Hilderman pointed out, the very nature of the Swiss deal is actually causing ructions domestically back home in Switzerland where they have their own pretty lively debate about immigration caps and so on. One of the roots of this whole idea of a Swiss model, if you like, contrasted with, I suppose, the other model that's out there, the Norwegian model, which would be another type of blueprint that the UK might follow was because the city had said that's what it would like, or at least suggested that. If none of those options is possible, where do we end up, do you think?
3: Well, I mean, some of the more optimistic voices in the city have suggested that this could be an opportunity to dramatically deregulate and position the UK as a sort of Singapore of Europe. I suppose the worry with that is that if there is any kind of regulatory race to the bottom, that could sow the seeds of further crises. And also, I think, factors like dramatically reducing corporation tax or encouraging entrepreneurs and financiers here through other sweeteners. Again, it may not wash with the electorate, given that Brexit was partly a revolt against the elites and against globalisation.
1: Yeah, interesting point to mention is we had a kind of straw poll of the 200 or so people in our audience at this panel on Saturday. And I think when we asked whether there should be incentives to keep banks in the city and to bring in fresh investment in fintech and so on, the vast, vast majority of people raised their hands and thought they should. But yeah, that may be exactly. saying a lot about our readership, not reflecting the general mood of the population. So on to our second topic, a look at RBS, because Emma, you've been writing some interesting stuff about their deposit base, particularly the fact that With a view to the upcoming ring fencing rules, there's a light being shone really on what they do with their excess deposits, particularly the excess deposits that sit in NatWest, which is essentially what would be the bit that's going to be ring fenced, and which is a gross $70 or so, I think. And what happens to that, and there's a large chunk of it that ends up supporting business that would be in the non-ring fenced bank going forward, which is corporate and investment banking essentially. This raises in turn questions about whether the non-ring fence bank, in other words, the corporate investment banking operation, would be able to sustain itself in terms of financing, getting a decent credit rating, all of that kind of stuff. Why don't you give us your take on the story quickly, Emma, and then we'll go to Tim Bush for his view.
4: So, Royal Bank of Scotland is diverting about £70 billion a year from its NatWest High Street Bank to the rest of the group, according to its reports and accounts. This has actually been higher in the past. Now, this money is going to a liquidity subgroup from which the rest of RBS can draw. Now, the bulk of this money is held on deposit with the Bank of England overnight, but the rest of it is going across RBS Group which includes riskier divisions, such as its investment banking arm. Under ring-fencing rules, which come into force in 2019, banks with more than £25 billion worth of deposits will be forced to ring-fence these from the riskier parts of their banking group, which will be classed the non-ring-fenced entities. So as you say, there are questions being raised on the financing of these non-ring-fenced entities for all banks and how they will continue to operate on existing economic terms.
1: And I think it's fair to say we get a, more of an insight into RBS's accounts because they have this separately incorporated NatWest unit, which is a kind of proxy for what the ring fence Bank would look like, whereas Barclays and HSBC we don't quite have the same level of transparency, is that right?
4: Indeed. So the structure is different. For example, in the past, Barclays Retail Investment Bank has been under the same legal entity, so you don't have quite the same clarity. But equally, you could argue that the issue is perhaps larger for the likes of RBS and Barclays. RBS, I mean, it's loss-making, it's lost more than £50 billion pounds over the past eight years and is expected to make a ninth successive annual loss. Whereas the likes of Lloyds is largely within the retail bank anyway. Most most of its risk-weighted assets, more than 95%, will be in the ring fence. And for HSBC, a large bulk of its operations are retail and corporate banking in Asia, and they have an excess of deposits which will be outside of the ring fence, so can therefore support that non ring-fenced business. But I should add that for RBS, they have actually been shrinking their investment bank quite significantly over the past eight years or so since the financial crisis, and that they expect it to constitute about 15% of risk-weighted assets under the new ring fenced structure. So this means that NatWest, which is expected to sit inside the ring-fence, can continue to lend these surplus deposits to a number of its businesses. However, it will not be able to lend to riskier parts of the business that will sit in the non-ring-fenced entity.
1: Well, let me go to Tim Bush now of uh, Investor Advisory Group, Perk, because I suppose the question is whether investors, including, I guess, taxpayers, given that taxpayers still own nearly four-fifths of this bank, should be concerned about this in any way.
5: First of all, Barclays has never made a large annual loss and certainly hasn't made a large cumulative loss in the same way that RBS has. And what's interesting about the fact that RBS still maintains NatWest Bank as a separate legal entity we effectively have a fossil record showing us where losses have occurred and where defunct businesses are being propped up by what is essentially NatWest Bank, the good bank.
1: There's a theory that suggests that maybe it's a route forward that the government should take, namely that rather than thinking about trying to sell off its shareholding in RBS, the broader group, whether it should spin off and try to float NatWest essentially the ring-fence bank.
5: Yeah, what's interesting about this ring-fencing issue, ring-fencing has been sold as beneficial to the government, but there is an argument that ring-fencing is also beneficial to shareholders because the problem that we've had with certain large banks is that all the shareholders are not one basket either. HSBC used to run a holding company structure, meaning that if any one part of the group went down, the shareholders didn't lose everything. Clearly, a NatWest bank operated on an open basis where one part of the bank could actually bring the rest of the bank down, meaning that in the event that there was a larger loss in one division, other good units, as has happened in this case with NatWest, would end up subsidising it.
1: Well, that's exactly what we saw, I suppose, to an extreme degree in 2008, but as you say, ever since that cross-subsidy has continued.
5: Yeah, it is particularly interesting that at the time that RBS was nationalised, the amount of subsidy coming from NatWest Bank depositors was actually less than it has been since partial nationalisation, that the number has in fact grown.
1: Yes. So in a word, should we be worried?
5: I think it's something not so to be worried about but to be vigilant and to keep an eye on and I think it would be helpful if the company could articulate a story around this that stacks up not only as to where things are going forward but actually gives some explanation as to what had been going on over the last 10, 8, 5 and however many years.
1: Very good, well I'm sure it'll keep our attention especially as ring fencing looms. Tim Bush, thank you very much. On now to our third topic, which is a look back at the investment banks' results from the first half of the year. We've got Ben on the line from New York. Thanks for joining us, Ben. So, in summary, the biggest investment banks in the world suffered an average revenue fall of about 15% in the first half of the year. That's pretty bad in the post-crisis history, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's very bad. It's the biggest drop since, I think, 2009, 2010, which saw a huge drop-off after the financial crisis. So what's gone wrong? Well, the big picture is a sort of fundamentally depressed activity across all sorts of businesses, trading stocks and bonds and advising companies on mergers and capital raising. It's just less lucrative than it used to be. And the world is just stuffed with too many banks, it seems to me, trying to do the same thing for very high fees.
1: And is there much variability between the different firms? Are we seeing stark winners and losers or is everybody kind of bunched together?
0: Well, what the coalition data presents is just an index, the top 12 by revenue. So there's not much stratification in evidence. But I think we've written in the past about the general trend that the Americans are doing generally better than the Europeans. And I think that that's certainly the case in terms of returns on equity. That's certainly the case.
1: Let me just bring in Laura on this then, because obviously the first half of the year in some ways was exceptional in some of the trends that we saw in the markets. But what do we think the outlook is going to be from here, both for the Europeans, but also more broadly?
6: Yeah, so certainly when you talk to bankers now within investment banks, Q3 does seem to have been better, certainly. I mean, if you look back over there, the first quarter was absolutely awful and almost all of the damage for the first half was actually done in the first quarter. By the second quarter, things picked up. By the third quarter, even in the UK, banks are saying that they're actually surprised at the level of activity which is out there, despite the uncertainty around the UK's exit from the EU. So there are some encouraging signs. Some bankers, when you talk to them, do expect to end the year break-even overall, despite having such a bad first quarter, and despite having that to overcome, they do expect to actually have an overall earnings number, if not the revenue number, higher for this year than they had for 2015.
1: Does that tally, Ben, with what you're hearing from the Wall Street sources that you speak to?
0: The trough was sometime in mid-February, and things have been looking brighter almost on a daily basis since then. But fundamentally, the returns picture is not as bright as these people would like. Just looking at Goldman Sachs, which you think is the sort of benchmark of excellence in investment banking, its net returns to shareholders in the second quarter were about half the net returns to bankers. So if investors are looking for themes in the second half, I think this is going to be the one. It's pay. It's too high.
1: We've been saying this ever since 2008, that there's going to have to be a step change in pay to share the spoils more fairly with shareholders.
0: Well, I think what we've seen in recent years is a series of tiny, tiny baby steps, which haven't really amounted to the kind of structural change that investors really want to see. The result is that as soon as revenues sink, of course, you can cut bonuses in proportion. But at the end of the year, you're still ending up with returns on equity that are not high enough.
1: And is that going to change?
0: I haven't seen much evidence that shareholders over here are very agitated. But the longer this goes on and the longer, for example, Value Act has taken a position in Morgan Stanley, if it can begin to get traction and demand some of the returns, boosting measures that they put on the table, then yes, perhaps we can see some more activism focused on pay.
1: Laurie, you disagree?
6: Yeah, I think all of the momentum out there now is actually in terms of pay increasing. When you think about how bad returns have been over the crisis, I think if there was ever a time when banks were going to grasp the nettle around pay, it would have been in the last five years. They haven't, as Ben said, done anything major. I don't see any impetus for them to do anything major now. If anything, they're after increasing base salaries to compensate for the new rules around the bonus cap that makes it even harder to do anything around pay during times when the industry isn't doing so well as it is now.
1: That's in Europe, obviously, but unless we get those activist investors really agitating, then uh, maybe the time has passed. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Harriet, Emma, and Laura here in the studio, and Ben in New York, Tim Bush, our guest from Perk. And also, thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?